The Nate the Voluntarius Livestream, Episode 81. Hey everybody, Nate the Volunteerist here, and today we have a very special show uh, for y'all because uh, we have a because I have a first because I have a um, the first first time special guest uh, for the new year, and uh, he is uh, and that would be um, Stephen Kinsella. So welcome to the show. Thank you. <laughs> so um, before we get started with uh, the uh, the uh, topics. Um, what I would like to do uh, traditionally, whenever we have a, a special guest on for the first time, is we introduce ourselves not just to the audience but to you as well, so that way you get to know us and how we became uh, anarchists. So, um, with that being said, um, who would like to go first? Uh, I'm Haplu. I'm an animator. I became an ANCAP sometime in, I don't know, late 2017, early 2018. Uh, I, I'm identified as, and I call myself a Hoppian, big follower of Hans Hermann Hoppe. Uh, and yeah, big fan of your, big fan of your works, Kinsella, especially as an artist. All right. Uh, and um, ho uh, looks like Heartless left again. So I guess I'll go. Um, I am SO. Uh, my channel's name on YouTube is Back Alley Philosophy. Uh, I went uh, Rothbardian and Cap uh, in late 2016. And since then, uh, my views have changed in not fundamentally um, to any extent, but my views have changed in the sense that uh, for one, I, I would um, I, I started off more as a Kantian, and now I consider myself an Aristotelian, so uh, a thick libertarian, in other words. <laughs> and um, I started taking influence from people like Carl Hess and Roderick Long, who I think expand upon uh, Rothbardianism quite nicely in a way that the sort of Kantian approach can't. Um, uh, sorry, buddy, would you like to go next? Yeah, sure. Um, hi, uh, my name is Heartless. My, my online name is, um, I'm basically a teenage ANCAP who just comes on the show, and I became an ANCAP because of Tom Lloyds. That's all I have to say. <laughs> all right. Uh, I'm Nate the Volunteerist. Um, to make my, uh, long story short, Started off liberal Democrat for 10 years in Hillary Clinton, Joe Lieberman camp, then Republican for three years with uh, John McCain, Lindsey Graham as main influences. Figured out neither neither are very different than Ron and Rand Paul came along, rescued me, got me into minarchist libertarianism. Then Eric July comes along, convinces me to become a voluntarist and... Uh, Shortly afterwards, I started making content, and uh, then I 
then several months later, I started doing my show. So there you go. <laughs> All right. Um, that being said, uh, so today's topic is uh, probably uh, uh, one that you know quite a bit about, <laughs> and that would be uh, intellectual property. Um, so <laughs> why don't you uh, enlighten everybody on why intellectual property pretty much doesn't exist, like, at all. <laughs> uh, all right. That's a great introduction. You seem like a great group of, group of guys, uh, people. Uh, I don't know what the right term now is. I want to be woke. Uh, uh, Ricky Gervais <laughs> gave me a little bit of a leeway less a couple nights ago. Uh, I can be a little bit myself, but no. Uh, um, I love to hear these stories about people that come to liberty or whatever you want to call our philosophy, right, from different perspectives. Um, intellectual property sounds very boring, and it's, you know, it's probably about as hard to get people interested in it at a Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner or whatever at your home as voluntarism or whatever, right? So it's like one of those things. Um, I've come to believe that intellectual property um, if not one of the most two or three most important issues that we should be focusing on, uh, understanding it clarifies uh, the principles that we we gravitate towards, right? To understand libertarianism and the freedom philosophy in general. Um, I'm a patent attorney. I'm a intellectual property attorney. And so I've focused on this as a libertarian thinker on the side or whatever you want to call me. Um, and so I've come to view IP, intellectual property, as one of the most dangerous uh, state infringements on liberty that we have. Uh, it's up there with the Federal Reserve, like central banking and inflation, taxation and war. And public education and other other things the government does. So intellectual property is the idea that property rights arise from intellectual or mental effort or creation. So ultimately, it 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 it, it amounts to the idea that you have a property right in things if you put enough effort into it, and you're you know you deserve a reward basically. And I think this is totally antithetical to the natural or free market or libertarian perspective, which is that we live in a world of scarce resources, and the way we handle that conundrum, right? The conundrum is that the dilemma is that we have people that want to use these resources together at the same time, and they can't do that. So we come up with rules that say, okay, how do we handle this conflict? And that's called property rights. So we, we, we have to allocate these property rights in some kind of reasonable, fair manner, and that's what the private property libertarian Lockean idea is all about. right? And so once you understand that in a consistent economically literate way, you understand that you have to allocate property rights by first use and by contract. Um, 
I mean, it's pretty simple, actually. Who who uses a resource first? Who get, an owner who gives it to someone else by contract? That's how you determine who owns a resource when there's a, a dispute. Now, intellectual property basically says that the government can step in and say that only this person has the right to use this idea or this pattern. But that what that means is that the government can, can tell people you can't use your factory. You can't use your printing press in a certain way, right? which detracts from the property rights in it. So the libertarian idea is that patent and copyright, which are the primary types of intellectual property rights, are totally contrary to private property, natural liberty, free markets competition, prosperity, innovation. And so this 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 mistake that we've all made in the West, right? The mistake is that um, the United States Constitution is somehow some kind of proto quasi libertarian document that frames the ideal situation we should aspire to or maybe slightly improve but basically you know so it's just kind of american centric idea which i totally reject by the way um the constitution was not libertarian the fact that the constitution of the united states happened to have a patent and copyright clause in it which justified the congress or the legislature enacting patent and copyright laws does not justify it. It just means that it was just, it was legally uh, it was legally uh, permissible according to the Constitution. But the Constitution is not libertarian, and we have to remember that. So it was a it was a mistake, a big mistake, and I think it's retarded human human progress. So I guess that would be my opening statement. Intellectual property law should be completely abolished. Patent and copyright should be abolished. We would be freer and better if we would abolish it right away. And yes, I'm a patent lawyer, and I know I'm a hypocrite, blah, 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 but let's focus on the issue. So that's my <laughs> opening statement. Yeah, yeah. yeah fair enough. Uh, I just – I have, a, I guess, a quick question. Uh, you said in the beginning that you didn't think that it's that important of, of an issue. Uh, I, I'd like to know uh, why exactly you think that, because in my opinion, I think intellectual property and the rejection of it could be, you know, one of the main positions that libertarians could use to bulwark their position to appeal to a lot of people, because a lot of people are having trouble with it online. I yeah. mean, I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've seen this many times over the years. Um, well, because initially I was uh, alarmed by and opposed to the, the main issues, right, which is taxation, um, the Federal Reserve, central banking, um, public schooling, and uh, you know issues like this, war, the drug war. To me, those are the big issues, and then you can list the other 10 or 20 after that, and I would put 
patent and copyright like in the in the bottom ten initially, like after that. But the more I thought about it, to, to figure this issue out, which is what I did because I'm a patent attorney and I'm a, I'm a libertarian thinker, so I tried for about five years, starting 25 years ago, let's say, to try to figure this stuff out because you know, I figure I'm a, a thinker and a writer, and I'm a patent attorney. I'm going to get questions about this, so let me figure this out. I mean there were two or three or four issues… In my mind, that I was more interested in, like epistemology and economics and law and rights theory and law and econ uh, uh, contract theory, those kinds of issues. But I thought I had to figure this out because everything I read dissatisfied me. And so I think I figured it out finally. And so, but figuring it out made me understand so many other issues of libertarian theory. Which have led to other insights, right? Like about owning Bitcoin, property theory, uh, causation and law, uh, lots of other issues. So I've discovered that understanding this whole issue is fundamental and key to having a good grasp of libertarian um, or justice theory because you realize that. <laughs> How important the idea of scarcity is, right? Like, yeah, ab absolutely. Like Go ahead. Oh no, I was just—you were asking whether or not I understand how important scarcity is, and I was just saying, yeah, I, I do absolutely. Yeah, I think anyone worth their salt would take that into account. Say again. He's talking uh, to. Yeah, that was all my comment. Go ahead. No, so I was just saying that uh, this is how this came about. Is my study of this area, like I feel like I'm a reluctant IP opponent because I never wanted, and I still to this day, in a way, I don't want this to be my the thing that I'm. Uh, focusing on right but right. it's a very very arcane and complicated issue because the law is so complex i mean it's almost like tax law or antitrust law or regulatory law one of these issues that only a few specialist attorneys know about and of course these guys have no uh interest in or knowledge of liberty or economics they're they're just technicians right um but the people that are good intuitionally or like like you guys probably all are on this issue you know you probably would have a hard time distinguishing between a trademark and a copyright and a and a, and a trade secret and a patent because it's an arcane technical issue so it's really hard to to fight an issue that you're like you're weak on like technically, um, so I've kind of felt like it's my duty almost to to explore this issue as someone who really knows the law, right? Uh, even though it's not my favorite issue to tackle, um, but the more I've looked into it, and I don't want to be biased, but I do think it's a key issue, and I would put it number two or three 
honestly almost number one on the issue of state evils because um, um, because so let let's look at the, let's look at the top three or four or five or six state evils. Okay, some of them are like obviously wrong, like say taxation from a libertarian perspective, right? Or war. But the others like public schooling, they're obviously wrong, but it's not so clear exactly what the damage is done. Um, but say the say I would say the drug the drug war is like the obvious one that we can all get behind because there's really no good argument for the drug war. There are some arguments for public education. There's some arguments for war. There might even be some arguments for uh, central banking, right, and the Federal Reserve. But there are really no good arguments for the drug war, right? Even taxation, you could you could come up with argument arguments for this. But to me, the drug war and intellectual property, there are really no good arguments for those two. And war, inflation, central banking, public schooling, they all cause so much damage. It's hard to categorize them. But I definitely think the patent and copyright law are up there with the things the state does. It does the most damage, and the problem is that most people don't see this, right? They they think of patent and copyright as parts of the property, the the capitalist system. I mean, they're called intellectual property, so they're yeah. thought of as a as a, as a property right. And most people are in favor of, let's say, capitalism or property rights or the free market, so they think of these things as part of that system. So that makes the, this case even harder to make. Mm -hmm. Right, and just there, there are two reasons why you know you didn't touch upon, but I'd say it is probably the most important issue. Uh, for one, um, it touches upon sort of what you were saying in the beginning, where libertarians, you know, they should sort of uh, scrutinize their own position on property because the thing is, there are competing ideas for what can be demonstrated through exclusive ownership. Now, I think that the Rothbardian uh, sort of contract theory is generally the most consistent, but uh, yeah, you can just, uh, the ca calling copyright or whatever specific um, part of intellectual property we're talking about, intellectual property has actually confused a lot of people. Like, one of the main things that I watched to sort of warm myself up to talking to you was uh, your debate with Robert Wenzel, and I think that would be a great example of that. He hears that it's called intellectual property, and then just he assumes that it's consistent with libertarian property ethics. Now, the second main issue is that I, I, th I would agree with you 100%. Uh, in the sense that uh, intellectual property is probably the most arbitrary and destructive barrier of entry created by the state for business. It creates an automatic monopoly which is arbitrarily granted to any firm that has an intellectual property right, quote-unquote, on whatever product they're making. And that consequently not only limits our ability to use our property, but it also creates a lot of poverty because 
not as many resources are being produced and not as much wealth is able to be created. And so far, the only argument that's even come close to being tangible is, well, intellectual property is needed for incentive. But as you've shown, that doesn't even really work. Because even from utilitarian grounds, that doesn't stand. Yeah, so... So the argument is, in a way, it's simple to make if people pay attention, or it's difficult to make because people have trouble paying attention, right? Um, it's simple to make because if you just focus upon the, the purpose of property and property rights and the fact that the whole purpose of property rights is to prevent conflict among the use of scarce resources right and we so we have to allocate use rights among scarce resources and we have to do this um you know given the reality of the universe and the fact that as human beings right we come upon the world in a world of mostly unowned wild resources so people have to be able to use these things. So there has to be a first use right, right, which is the Lockean idea, the Hoppian idea. Um, and then once you're the owner, you have to be secure in your rights because otherwise, if you're not secure in your rights, in other words, if if you just start using a resource and within 10 minutes or a day or a month, someone can take it from you just because they're physically stronger, that means there's no property rights. It's just possession. So we're not talking about a rights world. But if we're talking about a, a world of rights, first use has to be there, and you have to be secure in that use until you give it to someone else, which is where a contract comes from. Contract means you can transfer it to someone else. So these rules you know, govern uh, everything. So the way people nowadays think about things is they think in terms of economics or they think in terms of intuition or natural rights. The economic argument is that we should set up these rules by a government that issues commands, which is what the legislature does, right? Laws, which enhances incentives to use property in an efficient way. This is the way people think of things now. Efficiency, um, uh, this kind of stuff. Now, this is nonsense if you understand uh, the way the government works because there's no reason why you could expect the state to do this in an efficient way. And there's no criteria for efficiency anyway because value is subjective and not cardinal, which means you can't sum it up like numbers. So there's just no way to have an efficient equation of what the government does. I, val the I value I value talking to you two units more than I value talking to Nate. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So that is implicit in this sort of utilitarian empirical idea that uh, the government should come in and tweak things, right? This is the whole idea of nudge, like the government should nudge people. Um, but uh, – and a secondary problem with that approach is that even if you go with this 
methodology, like the way we should decide what norms there should be and what laws there should be is to have a, a democratically uh, elected legislature vote on laws and put them into place. Hopefully, you know, in the aim of increasing, I guess, overall utility. Even if you agree with that, I mean, you know, the United States patent and copyright system originated around 1790, 1791, right after the United States Constitution got ratified, 1789, right? So we've had this for 230 years, whatever. Um, the initial impetus was you, empirical or utilitarian in 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 scope because it uh, the constitution says that to promote the progress of the sciences and the arts the congress has the power to enact patent and copyright laws basically that's what it said now this was based upon the the the, the english uh experience with censoring the printing press which is where copyright came from the statute of anne of 1709 and the english experience of the the crown granting monopoly grants of privilege which resulted in the statute of monopolies of 1623 okay so this is where this stuff came from it came from things that are explicitly and clearly unlibertarian anti free market anti private property anti everything the modern age believes in and yet you have these objectivists and these idiot minarchist libertarians who frankly disgust me because they support this crap, okay? <laughs> There's like no excuse for this. I kind of respect a minarchist type who doesn't know what he's talking about and they just shut the hell up. Like there's a couple of older guys like 15, 20 years older than me who I respect for their work on philosophy and political theory. And I'll ask them, why don't you speak out against IP law? And they just say, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. At, at least they're quiet about it. I respect that. But then you have these other guys, these Randians, these objectivists, these minarchists, even Richard Epstein. And I mean, mm -hmm. these guys, I mean, it's like, really, just shut up. It's like, it's just horrible. What you're saying is not liberal, not libertarian. Not free market at all. Like they just assume that the government can step in and fix a market failure and cause there to be more innovation. It's and it's like the, the entire history of patent and copyright law is mired in censorship, state protectionism. Uh, it's it's like the antithesis of the free market. Yeah. So to my mind, and the case is not even rooted in the history of it but if you're going to make a, a historical case be aware of it and you're just wrong i mean it's just it's just totally everything about this is totally anti-libertarian so it just drives me bonkers that libertarians are so stupid that they look i can understand like okay trump just killed the bad iranian guy okay he probably was good, bad okay fine Right. Uh, the U.S. attacked Iraq 
25 years ago, whatever the hell it was, right? Because it was ratified by the United Nations and a congressional resolution. Um, okay, you can go with that kind of mentality if you want, but that's not libertarian. That's not radical. That's not fundamental. That's not rights-based. Um, we need to think about fundamentals, right? Property rights are about allocating scarcity, about solving the problem of conflict among scarce resources, and you don't do that by having a state come in with a congress allocating temporary monopoly privileges to people. I mean what the hell are libertarians thinking that they think this is remotely libertarian? Just because the government uses the word property as part of their propaganda term and libertarians buy into this, I mean these are the weakest-minded libertarians on the planet, and I really am getting really tired of them. Just shut up yeah. if you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, like I, um, I come from, uh, like I've uh, said earlier in the stream, I have, um, uh, I'm an artist, I'm an animator, so I come from an artist community, and you have uh, sort of the people who don't really know much, they aren't that political, and of course, um, you know, they're, they just think that without intellectual property, a whole bunch of Chinese people will come in and steal their art, which, uh, and of course, they'll get all the views and they'll get, I guess, less views. But it just drives me crazy to see all this reap, you repo, people reposting harms artists' things because uh, the. The reposter got a million hits, and the original artist got only, like, a hundred or so. Um, and, of course, like, the obvious question to ask there is, uh, how much would... How do you know how much the artist would have gotten with if there was no repost, you know? Uh, do you think that a million people would have uh, somehow found um, this artist's uh, work and... You know, so like it's one it's one of those things where people think that there is, in fact, sort of this uh, uh, pragmatic or market failure uh, without intellectual property, and therefore, in order to protect artists, we need it. But he, I grew up uh, watching like you know fan content, fan art, fan animations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. These things are an explicit violation of intellectual property laws, and uh, I don't think that if uh, they were to have to supposedly have their work stolen or pirated, the, like these fan artists, that they would um, take them to court and whatnot and get uh, restitution, get their uh, artwork um, protected. And, and the reason why is obvious. It's because they themselves would get sued uh, for infringing on someone else's intellectual property like i don't know star wars my little pony whatever um but these uh these fan pieces they still keep coming out and all that really happens with intellectual property laws is that you prevent them from getting things like say funding you know so you aren't protecting the creation of art but you're sure as hell destroying the improvement or further creation of art you know, it's one of those things that drives me crazy and shocked me just how little evidence there is to support the sort of um, utilitarian intellectual property position. 
Well, that was sort of my mm-hmm. point about um, the the original case for IP. Okay, the original case for IP was basically protectionism and censorship. Okay, the statute of Anne and the statute of monopolies. 1710, 1623 in England, and related laws in Europe and other laws in antiquity. And then the U.S. Constitution comes around, and we we ingrain it, and we we give it a utilitarian basis, and we say that, okay, we can have patent and copyright as long as it promotes the arts and the sciences, right? So that's the original basis. But my point is that you could forgive the Founding Fathers for giving Congress this authority… Although I would condemn them for it, but you could forgive them for making a mistake because this is 1787. They didn't know what they were doing. They just thought, okay, the English common law has morphed into a system where the English government has these two powers. Let's give let's give this power to the to the American government, but let's make it more democratic and less uh, more bureaucratic and less uh less special interest favored whatever it resulted in the same bullshit and but yeah. because america ex- uh, was at the forefront of the industrial revolution along with england and because the us economy expanded so much and you know industrialism happened and expansionism in america at the same time that they were they had the patent system right then in the late 1800s the patent system and the copyright system started becoming more and more of an entrenched feature of capitalism or the free market or what you call the western merchant you know uh, merchant merchant system and 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 um uh, so so then what you have is you have a a reaction by the emerging free market economist class in the 1800s and they started saying, should we really have patent and copyright law because this is a restriction on private private property rights, it's a, an invasion of the free market, it's anti-competitive. And in response to this criticism, you have all the industries that had at this point sort of becoming entrenched. You know, the the burgeoning movie industry in Hollywood, the the music recording industry, the technology industries. Edison, the airplane, you know, all these emerging industries that started becoming dependent upon patent and copyright law, they fought back and they said, "Oh, no, no, no. We're not we're not a monopoly. We're not we're not like a private uh, monopoly privilege grant. We're we are property rights. It's just a different type of property. It's it's an intellectual property." So that's where the term came from. And so that now you have these terms like even you guys use because you're using modern terminology, but you have terms like stealing and piracy, which are synonyms for for what? For what we would descriptively call competition or copying. Yeah. So if you learn something from someone and you copy it, now we call that stealing or theft or piracy. But piracy was when you would board someone's ship and take their stuff and kill people, right, and rob them. Theft, right. and, theft, and, pirate, and, theft and, and stealing is when you take someone's owned material and take it. So what we're doing is now we're using these terms to describe an act that's merely copying or competition 
or emulation or learning, which are all good things, by the way. None of them are bad things. So we're describing them. We're, we're calling when you copy someone, we, we say it's theft. Why is it theft if I emulate what you're doing? I'm just well, doing what you're doing. To be fair, um, the only person who used the word piracy or anything like it is me at naming myself professional pirate for this stream. And that was intended to be a joke because the subject is uh, intellectual yeah. property. But yeah, uh, I think really a better way to put it is people who argue for IP, uh, they, they think that they're entitled to views in the case of art or a marketplace in the case of any other commodity. Like they think that they have an entitlement to other people's money. In which case, I mean, that's essentially just the same argument that the state, you know, would put forward for taxation, just applied to specific markets. Yeah, there's like this crazy uh, movement on like, uh, I don't know what you call them or what a professional term for them is. Uh, but like s websites such as uh, DeviantArt, uh, are, there's these things called adoptables, which is, of course... Uh, someone designs a character and uh, they will sell you the intellectual property rights to that character uh, for, of course, money or the crazy currency that DeviantArt has. And, of course, that itself is obviously ridiculous, um, but it's nowhere near. But it, it just evolved so hilariously into, um, oh, well, now... We have adoptable poses, adoptable colors, adoptable or closed species, which I refer to as um, closed species are basically like if you make your character in this species that just so happens to share these traits of this species, which I supposedly created, uh, then you owe me money. I like to refer to um, closed species as patent trolling for fiction just uh, just draw characters yeah i know what you're talking about i've seen that before yeah yeah just it's... draw characters that look Sorry, exactly man. the same and then say that you like give it a different name and call it a different species <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's it's ridiculous to yeah. how not only that the laws are expanded in order uh, to you know protect large corporations and whatnot, but to sort of think that what people think they can get away with uh, in with sort of the framework of intellectual property, you know? It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. Well, so my view on all that is that okay, people are going to, they're going to do what they're going to do in the context of the given, the given laws, right? So we have trademark law which is yeah. probably the main driver um, of what you're talking about. We have copyright law, which is like probably the second driver in the culture area. Um, it's hard for me to blame people for responding and reacting as they do. I mean, after all, I'm a patent attorney. I responded to the fact that there's patent law by becoming a patent attorney, right? I mean, my job wouldn't exist if not for this kind of law. And yeah. Some of the practices you're talking about would not exist if not for trademark and copyright law. 
Um, g given that these laws exist, the tendencies are are, are predictable and and natural. But the question is, people. So so people tend to get used to this, right? Yeah. And so the the second thing I was going to mention earlier was it's not just a utilitarian. It's this sort of intuitive argument about creation, and this is the big mistake I think people make. So, and libertarians in a way are more prone to this than others because we actually think about rights and we think about why we have rights. And one of the common refrains we use is, "If you create something, you're entitled to it." Right, it's very simple, very simplistic. But if you just think about it in a vacuum like that without a context, then you would think, well, why if I make, I don't know, iPhones or horseshoes or horse saddles or or if I sell eggs for my chickens, whatever, if I create that and I can make a profit off of it by selling it in the free market, you start thinking like if there's a natural private property system in place, a natural justice system, then it's natural for you to make – to be able to make a profit. You're not entitled to it. You don't deserve it, but it's natural that you could. So you start connecting this idea of cre – so you think of creation. Like if I create something so-called quote-unquote of value – then I'm entitled, quote unquote, to a profit. Now you're not. You're really not. Mm. This is the this is the mistake. But in a free market, the tendency is that you will make a profit if you work hard and you have access to scarce resources and you transform them in a certain way, which is called production, right? You transform them into something people want to buy. You add a markup value, right? Your your creativity, your intellect, your labor goes into that. So people make a connection between all these things, which is fine, right? So you start thinking like the people that have more intellect, smarter people, right? People that work harder, more labor, they tend to make more profit or success on the market because that's what happens when you do this. So they make a connection. They think that, oh, if you labor more… You're entitled to more money. Well, that's Marxian. Like that's Marxism. That's communism, yeah. right? Or if you uh, if you put labor into it because of your intellect or your creativity or your time, you're entitled to more. So you'll hear these people that defend patent and copyright. They'll say things like, "Well, if I come up with a new idea that's valuable, shouldn't I get a? Shouldn't I be able to?" Pro They'll say something vague like, shouldn't I be able to profit off of that? It's like, yeah, you should be able to, but should you be guaranteed a profit? No. And even in the free market, if you're selling chicken eggs or you're selling really good boots or whatever the hell you're good at, you know, if you're really good at it, you're going to attract more customers, you're going to make a profit, and then you're going to attract competitors because they're going to see, oh, this guy is selling chicken eggs or, or nice, you know. Uh, bespoke boots in this community, and so there's a market for that. So people will compete with you, and when they compete with you, they 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 lower your profit margin down to the rate of interest over time. This is what happens. So you're never guaranteed 
a high rate of profit just because you were the first. And this is good. So, so free market people usually are in favor of this. They're like, oh, you're never entitled to rest on your laurels, right? You have to keep competing, keep innovating, keep working hard. But when people come and compete with you because they see what you're doing, if it's so-called too easy to compete with you because quote unquote most of the profit is derived from the recipe or the design of the product, which means it's easier for people to compete with you, then that should be hampered by the government. The whole idea is insane. Yeah, well, and the other thing is the, the other problem with their argument is it doesn't logically follow that because you have a chicken that lays eggs and you can sell those eggs that nobody else can have a chicken and sell eggs to make their own profit. Uh, that's sort of the other logical disconnect there is uh, you had an idea, but that doesn't because you had an idea what to do with your own resources does not give you an entitlement to control other people's resources, which you had nothing to do with. But 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 there's this assumption that that it is because you'll hear this. So j just like I, I criticize the idea of saying like um, um, using the word steal or theft, like you'll say you stole my recipe, you stole my idea. Well, they'll say you stole my customers. Okay, so like, but you don't own your customers, and you you never own a customer even today, much less in the future. I mean. You have to expect on patronage if you keep giving a good service, and maybe you get – but but the people that own their money own their money, and they don't have to spend it on you if they don't want to. That's your future customers. So yeah. the, the entire idea that there's this sort of goodwill – it's called goodwill in accounting terms, like that you own your customers. You don't own your customers. No one steals your – no one steals your girlfriend either. <laughs> <laughs> this guy stole my girlfriend. It's like, okay. You can use that language, but you don't have a property right in your girlfriend, at least not in the West. No offense, uh, no offense, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you you own yourself. Uh, nobody owns you, pretty much. Amen. <laughs> yep. Another thing that. Was mentioned earlier, but I don't think you know. I, I think this is actually even a greater point against you know the sort of current narrative with intellectual property. But piracy, uh, the the original industry of piracy, not how the state refers to people copying other people's resources. I mean, like as you mentioned, people boarding other people's ships and killing them and stealing their their uh, goods on board. Those people were given state charters to do that. Oh, yeah. So they were protected by the government. Yeah, I have a blog post about Private that. My, yeah, Sir Francis Drake, uh, who everyone lauds as a quasi-hero now. Yeah, he was just uh, he was just a thug and the, uh, a pirate, and the government gave him a, a charter to go do it in behalf of the British Empire for a while. So yeah, of course, uh, of course, piracy was 
piracy is an act of crime. I mean, so to call copying someone's files that they publicly uploaded to a site <laughs> to call that piracy is just question begging because you're you're assuming that you're assuming that copying something is equivalent to trespass, but it's not. This right. And that's sort of what I was bringing up is, you know, to call it piracy. It's also funny because what it's being named after was also a state protected venture. Yeah. How symbolic. But uh, another thing which you touched upon that I didn't think you expanded uh, upon, and I haven't, you know, looked into all of your work, so I don't know if you've uh, gone into this, but another pretty nasty thing I think which intellectual property does is it creates sort of a material incentive to argue for not necessarily uh, overall, but just for your own profits, um, state protectionism. Uh, are you still in the room, Stefan? Yeah, give me a second. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I don't know if you could still hear me, but... I can hear you. Go ahead. All right. Um, so a great example of this would be, say, Nike. You know, they have a trademark on their Nike shoes, and they can make a couple hundred dollars selling a pair of shoes that costs roughly five dollars to make. Obviously, that's not the profit margin that would be if Nike shoes could be made competitively. So, say someone comes along to compete with Nike, um, and they actually do try and sell their shoes uh, without patents at a competitive rate. Well, firstly, uh, the state would come along quickly, probably hit them with an antitrust suit or, you know, force them to get a patent uh, because in a, for a lot of markets, you can't sell commodities legally without having some sort of patent or copyright on your goods. Uh, the other problem is that's disincentivized in the current state economy. Uh, the sort of political economy created by the state because you're making um, because you're making less profit than Nike would be individually. Well, uh, okay, so here's here's the problem in these kinds of discussions. Um, what you're talking about is really not, in my view, patent or copyright. Now, it's true Nike, Nike does have copyright and patent. Um, but the problem is these laws are so arcane. It's like antitrust law or tax law. It's very, very, very specialized. It's hard to understand it. So I think the big driver for a company like a Nike is, tr is trademark law. Okay. Now, Nike does have lots of trademarks, and they rely upon this. Um, I don't think – and they do have patent and copyright, but I don't think that their business model depends so much on patent and copyright. Just like Apple, for example. Apple or um, – eh, well, Apple's a good example. Uh, 
So uh, if you take Microsoft or Google, like every industry is different. Some depend more on patent, which are inventions. Some depend more on copyright, like the music industry or Hollywood. Some depend more upon trademark, which like like Nike. Um, now, from a libertarian point of view, the trademark case is like way a, a distant third on the list. Like it's not nearly as destructive and harmful as copyright and patent. Partly because I think if it disappeared tomorrow, a lot of the practices would continue like they are now because of fraud law or contract law or just practical market uh, reputation rights or rep just reputation effects. Um, and so if you want to – like let's take a stupid example. If you want to buy your girlfriend uh, uh, some nice perfume like Chanel Number no. 5 for Christmas or for her anniversary gift or her birthday, you, know, you go down to a nice department store, and you, you spend $80 on a bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 perfume, for example. right? Yeah, you could go down to, to the drugstore and, and buy the clone for, for $20, but you know she's not going to be impressed by that. So you could do that even without trademark law, but trademark law is what enforces that. So what you're talking about, I think, like the Nike example is a trademark law case. Yeah, pardon, um, pardon my ignorance, but as you as you've pointed out, uh, there's, you know, it, it, these laws are made to be very deliberately confusing. So I, absolutely, I don't, I don't claim, absolutely, I don't claim to be a patent attorney, so. No, no, absolutely. I'm not being critical. I'm, what I'm saying is that these laws are intentionally uh, arcane so that a specialty of, of, of specialist practitioners and not just lawyers but a whole class of people that arise around this, right? Paralegals and uh, uh, search agents on the internet and uh, uh, a litigation specialty. Uh, the whole thing emerges right around this. Judge, even judges, like in Texas, there's like a special district in Marshall, Texas, called the Eastern District of Texas, ED Texas, EDTX, uh, which has been known for 20, 25 years as being the best place to file a patent lawsuit because the jurors there give higher awards for patent lawsuits. Now, maybe they did that as a fluke at first, but they got that reputation, and then this little town in nowhere, Texas, became known for that so they started doing it more right and so it became the place to go and then the congress had to pass a law to try to ameliorate what they call forum shopping and all this venue shopping and forum shopping and all this crap but the point is <laughs> this stuff is this stuff keeps changing from time to time but uh but in the trademark case look I think Nike could be a successful company. Coca-Cola could. All these companies could without trademark law. Oh, and, and everyone, everyone you hear that that they they come up with an argument for trademarks, they'll say, "Well, aren't you opposed to fraud?" And if you say, "Yes, I'm opposed to fraud," they'll say, "Well, then you're you should be in favor of trademark law." And I'm like, "Well, don't we have fraud law already? Don't we have contract law already that stops fraudulent transactions?" So why do we need trademark law? What does it add? And they never know because they don't know the differences. But they 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 go with the lobbyist 
descriptions of trademark law as being an anti-fraud law, which it's not. It's that's a lie, by the way, because we have fraud law already. It's called fraud law, right? So, right. what a trademark ad? No one knows because it's arcane. But trademark law is, in my view, like in the beginning, I thought, okay, we could have a remnant of trademark law, like five percent of it left. Defend it. At this point, I'm like, no, trademark law is totally evil too. But it's not as damaging as copyright and patent. It's like a far third, a distant third. But still, all right, go ahead. Well, just what I was going to say is I wasn't claiming that Nike couldn't do well on a free market. I think right. fundamentally the size of the firm couldn't exist on a free market because the reason it is sort of the way it is is because of state protectionism. But no, I think absolutely um, it could exist. All I was all I was arguing is that um, uh Patent and copyright creates a sort of disincentive from actually engaging in free market uh, competitive trade within the legal economy. Well, it's not, and by the way, it's not only that. There, there's a, a, a sort of a stronger argument against Nike would be the – I won't say left libertarian because it's not just left libertarian, but it's, it's the argument against uh, – um, Advantages given to large companies or corporations, um, but that's a whole different argument about the the, the corporation as a limited liability structure right. and and things like that, um, which I think do affect it more than the trademark law does. And but that's a whole different discussion. Yeah, um, uh, I wasn't trying to inject that into the discussion. I was just sort of briefly explaining my actual views. Right. All right, um, we are getting close to the one-hour mark. Um, I was uh, I was thinking uh, maybe we can go ahead and switch over to the Q and A. That's all right with everyone. That'd be yeah. great. Yeah, right. yeah. So um, I thought uh, I could start off uh, with the first question, um, and that is, uh, Stefan, how did you uh, become an anarchist? Um, basically, I think the progression is, um, I mean, from, I know a lot of libertarians can come from conservative or, li or, le or lefty liberal camps. Uh, I came from nothing and became a conservative sort of founding father, pro-free market American type, and then quickly – Read Rand and then Ayn Rand and then Rothbard and Bastiat. So I would say um, the Tannehills, The Market for Liberty, which is an anarchist book, which is probably underappreciated this decade. Um, Rothbard for New Liberty and Ethics of Liberty. Um, David Friedman. Uh, David Friedman's great book. So basically I became an anarchist just by being more consistent about libertarian th thinking, like just thinking about individual rights from an Ayn Rand anarchist point of view. So probably when I was like uh, in late college, uh, just the progression from from nothing to to anarchist and then to anarchist was natural for me. Hmm. 
Um, so, uh, what I, so uh, if anybody else here has questions, uh, you can go ahead and ask them. So those who are in the live chat, uh, feel free to uh, pour in those questions though, while everybody here uh, asks whatever questions they've got. Yeah, uh, somebody brought up uh, your debate with Robert Wenzel, and I was going to ask you about that. How how do you feel about that debate looking back and how the hell did you even get mixed up with a clown like that? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. So uh, well, it's it's gotten a lot of attention and it amused a lot of people, so I guess I don't feel bad about it. Um maybe I would handle it differently now, but um someone like that there's no there's really no chance of making progress with them so when you debate someone like that it's not about persuading them it's it's just about um um it's about airing views that other people might listen to and hoping that they will listen right so wenzel was sort of a early he's one of these guys like uh Look, I have no no problem with newbies in the movement, people that come out of nowhere. People that have NIMs, okay, you're a little bit more suspect, although I understand that nowadays having a NIM, okay. But if you have a NIM, you're going to be more um, you know, relegated towards uh, people who are going to like be suspect of you. He was just some NIM. It's not even his real name, and he just was an early – just like came out of nowhere, started following Lou Rockwell and these guys who I was blogging for, and he started attacking me and Jeff Tucker because we were against IP. So he seemed like he was a free market Rothbardian-ish type who seemed like an ally, but then he started going crazy about our IP stuff, and even though he knows nothing about it, like he literally knows nothing. <laughs> so, you know, but like a lot of libertarians, he's proud and he's boisterous. So am I. And uh, we started spatting on his, I don't know, his blog or something. And so I said, let's just debate, or he said, let's debate. I don't remember how it came about. So we did it, but at, but when we led up to it, I told someone he was a clown because he, he started. I started listening to his podcast. He sounded like a clown to me, and he just freaked out that I. Why you call me a clown, Stefan? I mean, all this kind of stuff. So it just resulted in something I think is kind of funny. But I actually – and he prom – so he's one of these guys that like promises to have all these things. He's he's just one of these scammer networker networking marker of the types, I think, or he was. You know, he has a NIM. He has 17 names. He's He claimed he was going to have a Google formula that would – make lots of money or he would he would come up with an argument proving this he claimed he went to the federal reserve one time and and had an interview with the federal reserve and basically what? all he did was he went there and he just sat in the lunchroom and and he <laughs> he had lunch with a friend and he recorded it on his like tape recorder and he claimed he had an interview with the fed so he's one of these uh exaggerated types right like like and no one takes anything he says seriously so uh, that's how that came about. Uh, basically, it came about because I I know what I'm talking about on IP, and when some newbie comes up and starts challenging me, I'm I'm willing to I don't know I'm willing to contradict them even if I thought they were an ally at first. I mean, 
I, you can't be against this issue and be a libertarian. It's like saying you're for the Iraq war or you're for the drug war, but you're still a libertarian. You, you really got to be solid on this issue. This is like a litmus test issue in my view. Yeah, and, I uh, oh, I just want to say Yeah, no, it's a uh, I'll just say something real quick and then you can go ahead and say something. I vote uh, my my main passion as a uh, as a libertarian is uh, ending the wars. Uh, it seems to be probably like my number one issue. Um, and I always made the argument that you can't claim to be for small or no government and uh, support um, an inter interventionism overseas because it requires a large and powerful tyrannical government, like pretty much like the one that we live under right now. And and uh, when you when you have the wars going on, you end up having all you know, say like the um, the Patriot Act. For instance, which authorizes the NSA to spy on uh, innocent individuals uh, for uh, you know warrantless surveillance, basically. You know, it, it pretty much interventionism leads but don't to. No, anyone who Ah, yes, Sorry. I am uh, so. I thought you were done. Ah. <laughs> oh. oh. Yeah, so that's all I wanted to say. Go ahead, Esso. Um, just what what I was going to say is I saw, you know, I was kind of just more wondering where someone like Wenzel came from because all, all I could find about him outside of his blog, which appears to be dead, is some conference that he gave at Mises University, which, I mean, that's a pretty big step up uh, from running a dead blog. Uh, and being somebody that is, you know, does they don't appear to know that much, talking at Mises. But, yeah, even at that that talk that I saw, uh, uh, that I watched, his little presentation on the, the Soviet Union and crimes under the Soviet Union, it, it's like he just read off the Wikipedia page for it. I mean, he wasn't <laughs> saying anything nobody already knew, and I, that that's more what I was wondering is... He, he's he's a figure which just baffles me uh, in how his position within like libertarian circles. Well, he um, I met him in person at Mises at in the in in the Auburn University Hotel bar area um, right before things went to hell with us and. Uh, he told me a bizarre story, which I will not repeat online because it would be so unbelievable. He could um, – it's it's the stuff he said was unbelievable. It's he makes it he makes himself out to be one of these characters uh, about his upbringing, things that happened, supernatural stuff. I mean, it's unbelievable. So instantly, I developed like, oh, he's a nutcase, you know? Okay. So uh, that's all I'll say here. But guy is uh, guy is uh, he, you know this is the problem. It's not the problem. Look, I love my libertarian peeps. Most of my friends are not the normal type of people that 
I associate with in this other realm of life, you know, professionals, engineers, lawyers, doctors, whatever. Libertarians tend to be idiosyncratic, and I love that about us, right? But I'm aware of it too, and sometimes, sometimes it means something, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that's all I'll say. Yeah. All right. Uh, is there any more questions? Anyone? Mm. Yeah, sure. Uh, what do you think about the work of Sam Konkin? Because I've heard you reference him before. Um. Well, who's that? Sam Konkin was like an early, let's say, nineteen seventies libertarian oh. guy. Uh, he died, I think, two thousand four, eighties. 2004. Oh, okay. Well, I know that Neil Neil Shulman, who was a friend of mine, um, who died, I think, last year, um, was a big promoter of Sam Konkin. Um, I think he was one of these early guys, sort of like the Hill, who like made a lot of influence in the nascent libertarian movement in the 70s and 80s. Um, he wrote an early piece, which is good on IP, which influenced Wendy McElroy – um, and a couple of others. So, and he was also a promoter of of what, what they call agorism now, which is like a libertarian strategy. And um, um, I, I'm not a big activist theoretician, so I I, I leave that to others. Um, so I think Konkin, from what I've read from the guy, he was impressive. He was really impressive on intellectual property early on. Um, uh, I think he would have done more if he had, had uh, lived longer or had more of a you know a backing. But he was in the early libertarian U.S. movement. Um, but I have nothing but good things to, to say about the guy from what I know. I just think he had a lot of potential. He did some early things, which were good. Um, his article on copyright is amazing, given when he wrote it, which is I think 1980. I want to say 81 or something like that. Called copy wrongs or something. I think it's on Lou Rockwell's page. Um, yeah, it's a great read. From what from what I understand of how this 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 Austrian libertarian proprietarian um, understanding of the intellectual property issue evolved. He was a key figure. Now, from what I've seen, and I think I know more than almost anyone in the world about this. Not to, I'm not. It's not even a humble brag. I just, I, I'm at a certain point where I just know. Yeah. Um, I think that Wendy McElroy. If you had to identify anyone, Wendy McElroy was the key figure in. There's two or three other figures like Sam Konkin right before her, but he was only embryonic in his ideas. And then Benjamin Tucker about 100 years before, but he was mired in socialistic ideas about property. So his case was always confused, although he was better than Lysander Spooner, for example, who was his quasi-protege. right? But Spooner, Spooner was like horrible on IP. Like if you identify people that just got it totally wrong because they just got mired in this Lockean idea of labor and creation and you own what you create, I mean Locke was 
locked sets of seeds for it, you know, and then you had marks and you had, and, and then you had, um, 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 people like Spooner who was horrible. And then you had like, uh, Alexander, uh, Galambos, this weird 1960s, 1970s hippie libertarian in California. And then you had Ayn Rand and you had J. Neil Shulman, my, my old buddy, all these guys just kept taking IP in further and further insane directions. Um, on the other hand, you had people like Benjamin Tucker who started getting it right, and then you had the other strand, right? You had like Wendy, uh, you had like a uh, Konkin, and then Wendy McElroy, and then you had Roderick Long, uh, and and Tom Palmer at Cato in the 1989 that that time frame. Uh, and then me and Roger Long in the mid '90s. So IP, and the whole time, like Rothbard, kind of muddled the case. Like, so the main thinkers are the ones I just mentioned. Right? I might have missed one or two, but that's the main thinkers. Uh, so Konkin, I give him credit for for his really good advances, although they were only um, partial. I mean, all right. <laughs> I'd say he's more well known for uh, countering. I, um, that's fine. Yeah, that's the stuff Shulman called agorism, or he called agorism. So, like, and there's an appendix to Shulman's decent novel, alongside Night, called "Is by Is by Konkin. It's about or it's it's about Konkin's agorism. I can't remember if it's by Konkin or about Konkin, but it's about agorism, which is counter-economics. Um, I, I, I'm not an activist or a strategist, so I, I, I don't have strong views about that. Um, apparently, it hasn't worked right. in the last 30 years, so I don't know. All right. Uh, um, I have a – I think I have a question. I have a question. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts on net neutrality and PSA stitches? All right. Oh, this is going to be good. If you know him. What's, what's, what's the last comment? K, KFA stitches? He's a YouTuber. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I've 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 talked about net neutrality. Uh, um, as a technologist, as a libertarian, um, as a so I'm I'm totally opposed to net neutrality. Uh, the net neutrality philosophy and legislation, especially. Um, I thought that uh, Trump's uh, – I don't know if it's Trump, but the guy that was the head of the FCC, uh, the guy who still has the FCC <clears throat> commission on this issue, um, the, uh, the 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 young middle-aged uh, Indian guy, not Ro Khan, not Ajit Pai. Ajit Pai, yeah. He's actually amazing, relatively speaking, as a bureaucrat or whatever. Um I was completely in favor of what he did and completely opposed to what Obama's FCC did. Um, I know there are left libertarian arguments against corporatism and against whatever, but um, I, I think that net neutrality is is, is horrible and anti-libertarian. It's, it's like a, a variant of intellectual property. So – and there's lots of uh, – 
nuances and details, and I've spoken on this on two or three podcasts I have on my website. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm anti net neutrality. I love how you know there was this giant propaganda campaign, which itself was promoted not just by the state, but by companies like Google uh, shilling quietly on Reddit to start these ideas and Comcast and all these service providers who net neutrality was supposedly slighting. Um, I, I love how it was a propaganda campaign created by them, basically, but I, I also love how it was just quietly forgotten about once it was evident that all the sort of doomsday scenarios that everyone was talking about, which would result from there not being net neutrality, were, of course, shown to be completely wrong yeah it's right. like I, when I, um yeah. it's like when uh there was this mass hysteria about uh troops supposedly being taken out of uh syria and that would leave the kurds vulnerable vulnerable to turkey but guess what all that happened is that kurdistan uh decided to ally with assad and they were protected from turkey and uh, we're just not talking about the kurds anymore not only that, the troops were not... They, they, the troops didn't come home. They were just no. moved to another country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, net neutrality mm. is uh, a plague. And uh, it's... Um, I honestly don't care about the curve. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you didn't even really need to see net neutrality repealed in order to know that was going to happen considering that the first 40 years of the internet up until that point uh there was no such net neutrality restriction created yeah mm -hmm. right exactly um does, i have uh, a question oh yes go ahead yeah um um, Safan, uh, what would you, uh, what would uh, your response be to some of these um, utilitarians who might say, okay, Stefan, intellectual property is not property. You're correct. However, if we do not have IP, we will not, there won't be innovation. So we need to have IP laws. What would be your response? Well, I don't know if it's hard, to, if it's easy to have a a two-minute or five-minute response to that. Um, but first of all, I would say that my argument is not that it's not property. Um, and this is why I try to focus on fundamentals in my libertarian thinking is, is about property theory and rights theory. Um, the question really is never what's property. The question is who owns this resource, right? So that's one mistake people make. So they end up asking the question, what's property, what's not property? That's never the question. The question is when people have a – when two or more people have a dispute over a resource in which they can only have a dispute over a resource because you can't have a dispute over something that's not disputable, that's not contestable, that's not scarce. When there's a dispute, the question is simply who, who has a better claim to it, who owns it. So the question is always when we identify the resource that people are contesting, how do we answer the question which one has the better claim to it? 
So that's really the question. It's never is this property or not. So the whole the whole way of that that IP advocates frame it is is just wrong. So if I say that uh, patent law should be abolished, people say, "Oh, so you think ideas aren't property?" No, that's not my view at all. My view isn't that ideas shouldn't be property. My view is that ideas are not scarce resources. They're not the thing that you can contest, and they are praxeologically, right from the point of view of Mises, Mises' view of of, of, of economics. They they serve a different role in human action. Human action requires two two things for to be successful to achieve what you want to have a successful human action. You have to have access and control of means, means of action, scarce resources, things that help you leverage reality, they help you causally change things. These are scarce means, and you need knowledge, knowledge that guides your action. You have to know. You have to be aware. You can't be a stupid jellyfish. You have to know things. So knowledge and access to means are two different parts of of, of action, and property rights only govern the first. Uh, well, only govern scarce resources. I forgot which one I said first. So that's the main that's the main issue there. Um, now, when you say like, uh, how would you respond to the issue that we would have less innovation? If we don't have government, I guess government incentives to innovate, which is how we're, which is how now we're looking at IP laws, like which is how everyone looks at them, right? Like we're all in favor of innovation. Now, what is innovation? Innovation, innovation, in a, it just means new knowledge. It means new ideas. Now, why is this important? It's because the accumulation of knowledge in the human species, mainly technical. Or engineering or pragmatic knowledge like how do we rearrange these scarce resources that exist in the world to better serve our ends and our goals like what so the more knowledge that we have makes us richer and more wealthy and more powerful and more potent right more prosperous as a species this is why I believe that we have the amazing wealth that we have now. We're at the two, end of a 200-year period of exponential uh, growth but since the beginning of the, the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in around 1800 in the UK and the US and in Western Europe, and that's because knowledge started accumulating, and it continues to accumulate, and that's a good thing. This is why I'm so passionately opposed to patent law especially. Not just copyright, but patent law, especially because anything that hinders the development of of of, of, of human technology only serves to slow down our curve of progress and basically kills people. I mean, honestly, it kills people because the more wealth we have, the more diseases we can cure, the more safety measures we can take. Everything just increases in a, in an exponential way. Anything that slows down innovation kills people, murders people. So to my mind, anything that hampers innovation is evil, and IP law does that. Now, the reason people favor patent law is because they, they erroneously believe that it, it encourages innovation. As a libertarian, 
as an econom as an Austrian sympathizer um, student, I would say um, the purpose of law, the purpose of the purpose of rights, the purpose of the state, the purpose of justice, the purpose of the legal system is not to enhance innovation. That's not the purpose. It's to do justice. It's to protect property rights so that we can have a secure legal infrastructure for people to progress and have cooperation and the division of labor and society and social progress. But even if you believed that the purpose was to was to promote innovation, you don't do it by taking wealth from some people and restricting their property rights, which is what patent law does. And and giving like a 17-year limited monopoly privilege right to someone else that the government thinks is should be favored for this temporary period of time. That's not how you improve innovation by shifting things around in society. We know what we know what that does. We know what shifting things around does. You shift things around. You make A better than B. You make A better off than B by taking things from B and giving it to A. And on net, you make society worse off because on net, B is worse off than A is made better off. And even if it's not, it's unjust. So the the way I look at things is it's from an Austrian with a subjective view of utility and value, and as a libertarian with a, an individual point of view, perspective of justice, it's wrong to help A by harming B. It's just wrong. I don't care about the net balance, to be honest. But even if you look at that, Austrian Austrian economic theory tells you that that is confused as well because you can't you can't sum these things up. Mm-hmm. So that's my answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, um, what do you? Oh, okay. Sorry. Go yeah, go ahead. What, uh, what I was gonna ask is whether or not you've seen that uh, that EU propaganda piece that came out. I think in like the later end of 2018, that was supposedly depicting a world uh, without intellectual property. Have you seen that? Oh, good lord. It, 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 sound, it sounds familiar. Yeah, uh, it was some girl, like, in a really dreary-looking city. Everyone was wearing the same clothes, and she was in this very Stalinist-esque apartment. And she was listening to uh, music on her phone, and it showed on her music player that every single song was exactly the same. Uh, <laughs> and, like, the end of the ad was intellectual property being recognized in somebody making a new song and that was supposed and the message was supposedly everything would be the same if there was no intellectual property <laughs> if, if anything there if, was if, how <laughs> if anything i'd say that's like <laughs> the night that's the world that was being depicted in that ad is like the nightmare scenario of intellectual property being taken to its logical conclusion. But but this is the status. So this is the, in my view, this is the status mentality, right? So like these people can't conceive of society operating 
I mean, it's equivalent to the idea that, like, if you don't have government schools, no one will go to school. There won't be education. Now, I'm sure that if the government in the U.S. had taken yeah, over so. uh, the supermarkets, everyone would under they would say, "How could you have a grocery store if the government doesn't control it?" You're exactly so now they're, right. They're they're used to the government controlling the post office. And the roads, and uh, the fire departments, and the military, and the police, and and education. So they can't imagine how you could have these things without the state. But that's just because the government hasn't succeeded yet in taking these completely over, right? So yeah, I would just say they're just wrong. I mean. So uh, I was going to say that about in 2000 – I found it on my website. There was a study from 2012 from the United States uh, Patent Office and the Commerce Department, and what they said was intellectual property contributes $5 trillion and 40 million jobs to the economy. Now, what they did was they just looked at like a slice of the economy, some, some study. And they said, well, how much of the economy depends upon, I don't know, ideas or technology or innovation, maybe one-fifth of it or whatever, right? And because the assumption is that the patent system and the copyright system is behind that, you can give them credit for it. Now, it's complete bullshit, right? <laughs> but yeah. you yeah. can come up with these statistics, and you could say that without trademark law… And you would have a bl I, so I get this question. So like like your original question, I get this all the time. People say like, well, if I can't, if I don't have a copyright on my music, how can I sell it? So they they think that you need permission of the government to sell something. You don't need permission of the government. Now you need permission of the government to stop people from competing with you. That is true. So the real question is, how can I sell something for a profit? When people can compete with me very easily, that's a real question. But that's an entrepreneurial question, and that's not the job of a, of a libertarian theorist to answer. And the but the, the real answer is you have to figure it out because the free market should be open, and you shouldn't be prevented, protected from competition. So the question is, how do you figure out a business model where you can make a profit even though people can compete with you? And the answer is usually – to that kind of question, the answer is usually, well, the regular free market is fine because if I start a pizza joint, it takes people two, three, four, five years to compete with me. But it's really, it's really easy for someone to compete with me if I just come up with a new drug, and it costs me $500 million to research it, and I come up with a new drug… And someone can compete with me for just a very low cost because all they have to do is watch and wait and see what drug is profitable, and they can just copy my formula and make a, a, a competing copycat drug. Right? That's the whole rationale behind the FDA and the patent system in the field of pharmaceuticals or drugs. Mm -hmm. So what they're really saying is we're, we're normally in favor of the free market. And we're in favor of competition, but we're against competition if it's too easy to compete with people. So they're basically against competition. Like they don't want a free market that's idealized where 
you can have a, a new entry into the market and someone who can compete with you uh, instantly. Like if it's too easy to compete, then the government has to step in and fix this defect in the market, which is the same argument that statists give, right? They basically um, – they believe in market failure, and they think when there's a market failure, the government has to step in and correct the market failure. But this is always the argument statists will use. Statists will state. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, just like uh, – just like I've seen several tweets from Eric July, you know, status is going to status pretty much. <laughs> yeah, status is going to status. Something I was going to say um, this up to a, a point which you mentioned in the beginning is that's exactly true. That's not even hypothetical that if the state nationalized the distribution of sort of contemporary opinion under the Soviet Union was. Uh, like, for example, when I'm sure you've seen that clip. Uh, Stefan of like Bernie Sanders from the early 80s saying well it I mean it's a good thing to have the government distributing food bread lines because if we didn't have them then the rich people would get all the food and everybody who wasn't rich would just starve well the context to that clip that's usually not provided is that was actually him giving a press conference in the Soviet Union and the reason oh, wow. he, and the reason he was able to say that and not get laughed at is because that's actually what a, what people thought there because it was a planned economy if he would have said that same thing in the US he would have been laughed at because everybody can see I can go to the store or I can go to the grocery market the grocery store and with a day's wages I can buy you know what what used to be uh, a king's feast but yeah i just i i wanted to mention that because you you'd brought that up yeah um so uh should i uh, go ahead and uh go, turn over to questions uh, in the uh, live chat see what everybody I had uh, one last go question. Ahead. Okay, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, w what are your thoughts on the um, like the Carl Hess branch of Rothbardians, Austro-Libertarians? What do you mean? Um, the sort the left Rothbardians, the Alliance for the Libertarian Left, people like Roderick Long, uh, Konkin. Uh, Carl Hess, their their arguments, um, their sort of Aristotelian appeal to libertarian ethics, or as they call it, mm. thick libertarianism. I just want to know your thoughts on that. Ugh. That's a big topic. Let me just try to hit it real quick. Um, I, I First of all, I try to stick to things that I think I know something about, and when I comment on things outside of that, I try to say that. So these are things I have intelligent opinions about, but I, I don't claim to be an expert. I have a final word on it. So I'm extremely skeptical of the entire philosophy of thickism, number one. But thickism is right and left, so it's not really a left right. critique. Um, I am appreciative of the uh, of the uh, the kind of realism and the uh, 
the cynicism of the left libertarians about the corporate uh, system that we have. Like the, the entire uh, stuff that Rothbard has about Gabriel Kalko, who is a lefty, um, about how big corporations in the U.S. and the West um, are not exactly uh, capitalist ideals. I agree with that totally. Um, you have Walmart promoting the minimum wage not because they're ide ideologically pure or because they're well-motivated, but because the minimum wage – well, either because they're just stupid or because they know that the minimum wage will hurt them less than their competitors right? because they can afford to pay the minimum wage anyway. So things like that I totally agree with. Um, I'm not an activist, as I've said many times. So a lot of lefties tend to be activist types, and I'm not, I'm not I'm just not on board with the activist uh, program, uh, especially from a lefty point of view. Um, personally, I'm hostile to the lefty mentality, um, their opposition to say called so-called hierarchy and natural authority. Um, not to say that I'm personally in favor of it, especially not as a libertarian, um, but I'm not as as hostile personally to the idea of natural authority and hierarchy as the lefties seem to be. Um, I think that in a free society, you would tend to have more hierarchy and authority than the lefties seem to want, but probably less than we have now. Because I do think – I do see a future world um, that's very tolerant, cosmopolitan, disparate, and diverse, and advanced and rich, prosperous, very more – much more secular, less religious. Uh, I'm, I'm talking 50, 150 years from now, right? a long time from now. So I see that as our human future if we if were to make it. So I think in a way it would be more capitalist, libertarian, um, but whether it would have these kind of isolated, physically isolated private covenant communes of people with uh, you know Christian biblical associations shunning homosexuals, I don't really know if I see that to be honest or really want – I don't want that myself at all. So, so the lefties, I I appreciate their skepticism towards towards authority that's developed, and towards the capitalist or the crony capitalist institutions that have arisen. But I don't, I don't, I certainly don't agree with the Kevin Carsons that that wing. Yeah. I would say so. So, like who's who said you should be head cable company executives and things like that. I'm not hostile to the capitalist West. I, I tend to give them more. Um, you know, we live in a 70% free world, whatever. So give them some credit, right. right? But I'd say theoretically, my biggest difference would like Roger Long is probably the the philosopher who's more left that I respect the most. Um, and I think my biggest theoretical disagreement with Roger would be on his attempt to. It wasn't really his attempt. He was just really defending his fellow lefties um, about 
the idea of a spectrum in the idea of uh, private property, um, mainly land uh, ownership. So, um, and I've written on this. We've we've debated on this online, but um, I don't agree that the um, that this uh, this mutualist idea is correct. And I think that's not just at the end of the spectrum. I think it's actually not libertarian. So I, I don't think you can say that um, if someone le so if someone leaves their property, okay, the, they leave their resource untended for a while, like a factory or a uh, a building they they've leased out to someone or their own home. I don't think that that means that they've abandoned it. At the edge of the abandonment spectrum, which is what Roderick and others would kind of try to argue to resuscitate uh, the, the sort of uh, the mutualist view of libertarianism. Um, I think that to, to to argue that you have to undercut the idea of sovereignty and, and contract rights. So if I own a factory or an apartment. Uh, a building, for example, and I want to lease it to people to live there who are tenants or have uh, uh, employees who work my factory for me. I think I should have to be able to have a contract with them, and that contract would keep alive my ownership claim of that property, that resource. Now, the right. lefties in the end, the lefties in the end would have to say. After some point of time, I don't know, a month, six months, two years, whatever they want to say, that the 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 factory workers or the the tenants of my apartment building, they finally can just squat and get an ownership claim over that resource because I'm not physically using it myself. Now, to my view, that's the ultimate consequence of their view. And that's unlibertarian because it undercuts the the entire concept of private property ownership, and it undercuts the concept of contracts, having contract, having contractual relationships. And because I'm not a paternalist, right? Because I think people are big boys and they have the right to make decisions on their own, even blue collar workers, you know, even coal miners, you know. Even people that rent apartments, even employees at Walmart, I think they have the right to make their own decisions as big boys. I think their, their contracts should be respected and they should be bound, binding. And because of that, I think that the entire left libertarian idea um, that property rights can, um, can fade over time is wrong. And in international law, that's called desuetude, by the way, D-E-S-E-U-T-E-U-D-E, desuetude. And I disagree with that, and I think that's ultimately what the left libertarians think. Now, that doesn't mean there's no role for abandonment. If you let something actually go abandoned, you don't police it, and people do squat on an unowned piece of property, that's one thing. But if someone is a, an employee or a tenant, and they have an ongoing use of the property and an ongoing contract with the original or previous owner, I think that that should be respected by law. Okay. Uh, I, I, 
I think I, I kind of disagree with how you characterized that, but I'm, I, I'm not looking to debate about it. I just, well, uh, Roderick especially, I don't think he disagrees with that, or at least not to my understanding. He's said very, he said very clearly, he's a, a Rothbardian, but. Yeah, Roderick is among the best, and Roderick, but Roderick did explicitly say that he thinks there's a spectrum, and that the mutualist uh, take on this could be characterized at one end of the spectrum. Um, that's why I picked him because he's the best, and he's the that's the kind of edge case where we, I think we disagree. I can send you a link if you want, but where we talked about this. Okay. Uh, um, yeah. I, I've heard him explain something like that before, but there's it, it was kind of what I had said in the beginning, which is there exist competing ideas for what uh, can be demonstrated to be uh, exclusively owned. And that's not to say that there are more than one idea which is right. It's just that there's more than one idea. Right. Yeah. I just I just I disagree with how far you can stretch the spectrum. So I think you can stretch it over a certain area. I don't think you can stretch it so far as to include mutual mutualism. Which is Fair the enough. idea that you so 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 it's the idea that you can so so he's taking the legal idea of abandonment, okay, which I abandonment is a practical pragmatic idea where you can you can release or relinquish your control over a resource, and, and you can do it explicitly, like by an explicit act of abandonment, or you could do it uh, tacitly, just by disappearing, right, or by not taking care of the property. I agree with all that. But if you if you have a used resource like a factory or or an apartment building that you own, and there are tenants or there are employees in it, and they're using it on a day-to-day -day basis, and you have an actual – let's just say you have a written contract with them. There is no way legally you can argue that you've abandoned it to them because you never – you like you literally never did. Now, this may be my legal uh, training or biases, but abandonment is never we, – we have what we call default rules. Uh, in the law, like which, like if you don't have a will or if you don't have an agreement with your spouse and you get divorced, what are the default rules that will come in? We call them supplative rules or just um, gap filler rules, which no one really can complain about because you had the chance to make it explicit. And if you didn't do it, you really can't complain if the default law in the jurisdiction comes in and says. Uh, here's who. Here's how we divide the estate. Here's who gets your estate if you die. That kind of thing. Because you had the chance. But the point is, they only come into play as a gap filler if you don't say explicitly what you want. But if you say explicitly, that always comes first. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose uh, you want to go into a boxing ring and have a fight with someone. Now, normally, if someone punches you in the face, we would call that battery, right, or assault and battery or aggression. But because you consented, yep. it's not battery, right, or a football game, an American right. football game. Well, but, but the point is right before the game, 
if you decide not to enter the ring, you can't be dragged and forced into the ring and forced to fight because now if the guy punches you, you've already said, I want out of this fight. I don't want to do it. I'm not consenting. I've, I've withdrawn my consent. So the point is, which consent matters? Is it the previous consent okay, that makes sense. or is it the current consent? And it's always the current consent, right? Right. For use well, for use of your body, and so the same mm -hmm. thing to me applies with 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 the property of a capitalist owner of a uh, of a condominium uh, uh, or of or of a factory. Um, if if you're not using it, that's one thing, and and if 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 you're not there, you don't say anything. The law has to make a choice. Who owns it? And maybe the squatter should own it. Maybe the state should own it. I don't think so. That's called a cheat. E s c h e a t. A cheat in the law, which I don't agree with because I'm not a statist. But you know, there are default rules that say who owns things when people don't specify. But all these right. rules are, are when you don't specify. But if you specify, that dominates. And so Roderick Long and these guys, they want to say that. They want to say abandonment can satisfy the, the legal idea of abandonment can, can can answer the question of this dispute uh, uh, among the the leftists and the capitalists about ownership of these resources. Uh, but they can't because if I own a house or a factory and I let someone use it with my permission, it's not a case of where I didn't say what I wanted, and the government – the law has to, to come up with a gap filler. So so this is a disagreement I have, and I've written on this, and I can send it to you. But anyway, that's that's my probably All my right. main legal disagreement with Roderick, who is the most respected probably leftist – left-leaning libertarian. Um, look, I just published in a book with Roderick with the with the, the Gary uh, – some, some – uh, uh, Chris Schiavera from New York and some other guys edited. So I'm 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 totally happy with to be allied with these left libertarian um, all I was uh, thinkers. All I was going to say is nothing about what you said I disagree with. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, I I mean Roderick and many of these sort of left uh, Rothbardians. That's not a position they would dispute either. Now the mutualists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the mutualists would disagree, but Roderick's not a mutualist. No, but so the disagreement is Roderick thinks that the mutualist is at one end of the spectrum. So that's where we disagree. So like he thinks that that is the it's it's a matter of degree about when you think abandonment starts. So he thinks that you could argue as a mutualist that abandonment starts at let's say a month or two months, like if you just leave the property. And he thinks that that kind of argument could justify the mutualist uh, view of occupationism, like like if the workers occupy a factory that they get to own it or something like that. And I think that's wrong. I just legally, it's a matter of legal policy. And so that's one tiny area we disagree on. We probably disagree on the analytic synthetic dichotomy too, but he's a philosopher and I'm not. All right, fair enough. <laughs> Right. I I myself have got a question before Nate switches over to uh, the chat's questions. All right, go for uh, it. You've uh, uh, you've uh, d 
dispatched a lot of lies surrounding the uh, infamous, or not infamous, controversial figure known as Hans Hermann Hoppe. You know, a lot of people in, say, Libertarian Party want his head on the platter. Uh, just sort of a uh, in question I've all, I've been wondering is, um, what's sort of like, I don't know, the most egregious or the most common or dumbest uh, sort of lies people have about the man or misconceptions or whatnot? Oh. <laughs> what are the worst lies about Hoppe? This will be interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's hard to defend other people because especially if you're outspoken and think for yourself, you know, we tend to think for yeah. ourselves. Um, um, I mean, personally, I don't think people know him that well. He's, he's a German. He's, he's older now. He's not that well known to lots of people. He has been heavily, uh, linked with the Mises Institute crowd which has made him less known in a personal way probably to um, the other classical liberal or libertarian crowds. Um, so they just don't know the guy. They, they have this image of him as being this kind of um, big, stern, hyper-conservative uh, uh, ogre type, and that's all just nonsense. If any if, sweet and lovable and a really nice gentleman yeah. who's interested in ideas and scholarship and um, so like that whole image of him is just nonsense um, uh, he says things maybe in writing that uh, come across or have come across in the last 20 years or as uh, ruffling some feathers as he's He's Germanic. I mean, he says things in a very, very, I won't say harsh, but in a precise way, and that comes across as harsh to some people. So that's one thing. Um, uh, I guess the other thing, I mean, look, the guy is from, Austri from Germany, has Austrian roots. I mean, like literally from – he like has a house in Austria. Uh, he came to America to study under Rothbard, a Jew. Um, he's married to – a Turkish Muslim woman. I'm, the guy is a cosmopolitan and just a, a decent, regular Western guy through through. So, yeah. um, I think that probably the biggest misrepresentation would be intellectually his comments about um, the the. The composition of a future private society in terms of the tolerance it would have towards people that fight the fight this kind of underlying order um, where he said something about how a private property covenant based community would have to physically expel or 
some other term he used. Uh, physically, remove. Physically remove um, people that advocated like homosexuality and communism, things like that. Now, I would first of all say that you know English is not his first language. He did have his he did have people help him with the editing of his earlier books. Um, and he did say advocated. So people say he's anti-homosexual. I can tell you he's not, and everyone who knows him knows he's not. He's not yeah. that type. He was talking about people that – I think he was imagining that – I actually think his view is a little bit old-fashioned. Like I, I do think my personal view is in the future, if we have freedom, it will be way more – uh, uh, what's the word? P h y l e s files. Like we'll have more files. Like we'll have people that will, like we're doing now. People they will associate based upon common interests that are not necessarily geographic or ethnic or whatever based. Um, and I think we'll have way more cosmopolitan groups. And I I personally don't imagine a world of a bunch of uh, a hundred, you know, seventy thousand people. Uh, Christian suburbs, like with their own little contracts, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. Uh, theoretically, it could happen, but I just don't. Uh, I don't predict that happening. Um, I think the world will be cosmopolitan and diverse, and 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 and, and uh, uh, tolerant, and all that kind of stuff. Um, more secular, uh, more more technological, you know, more more uh, less religious. <laughs> It might be. Mm -hmm. um, that's my view. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it is compatible with with, with Hoppus. He he was trying to use a 20th century idea of what we could have envisioned the future would be if we have more secessionism, as Mises talked about. Like if you have 20,000 Liechtenstein's in the world, which I agree with him would be an improvement of the world, probably, right? Yeah. Um, now, whether they would have walls up against each other and stop immigration, and I doubt it. I think they would have free. They have to have free trade because no one's going to be self-sufficient in that kind of world. You know, America can be self-sufficient because we're so big. Maybe China or Russia could be. Maybe Canada. You know, but but basically everyone's got to trade and interact to get along in this world, and we're all better off if we do so. Of course. Um, I know that's kind of a rambling answer, but I think that um, Hoppe is not in favor of, of some kind of Christian covenant world. Now, what he is in favor of is he he does think that the natural order would include the natural uh, family unit as the basis of normal society, um, and I I tend to agree with that. But that's not really a hardcore libertarian a prioristic view it's just a natural view like just by observation yeah, and, and it doesn't mean everyone is going to do that you're going to have bachelors you're going to have uh you're going to have priests that are never married you're going to have people that are uh, outliers in a sense of the deviating from the north you're gonna have homosexual you know people that never have kids you know and that's fine but the basic unit of society would be a, a kind of a, a heteronormative Grouping that would not be looked down upon and criticized for being what they are, and that would yeah. be the the roots of society. And I guess his idea was if you have a a commie 
who's down the road and he, he all he does is spend his whole days saying that the roots of his own success and sustenance is evil and he wants to overturn it. Those people would tend to be ostracized or not favored. So I think that's what he was meant with his physical removal. Like people would tend yeah. to associate with like minded types. Although I don't know if that's empirically true. Yeah, that's uh that's my observation about his readings too. And yeah. Somebody in the chat says I'm defending white nationalism. What the fuck? <laughs> 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 hey, Stefan, do I sound like I'm defending white nationalism to you? I mean, if you're going to be a nationalist, what kind of nationalist do you want to be? I uh, I don't consider myself to be a nationalist. <laughs> I can no, say, I can... you don't sound like it to me. I'm I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, I, I no. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and uh, flash some of the questions on the screen, uh, which is a feature that uh, StreamYard has, but Hangouts does not, as a matter of fact. So here's the first question by Arsh Anwari, and that is, if it'll just come up for me, Uh, how would you respond to the claim that anarchist societies were never large in scale and only work in small communities? Well, I don't – again, I've written on anarchist ideas. I don't know if I consider myself to be the world's biggest anarchist uh, – well, I know I don't uh, – thinker or philosopher. There are people who have studied this more than me, but I have opinions. Um. My view is that uh, one way to think about this is to keep in mind the distinction between between um, prescription and description, or between fact and norm, or fact and value. Um, that means that we as civilized or somewhat civilized humans have a view about what is right, what's justified, what's good. What's permissible, what we should do, what we should not do, but we distinguish that from what factually happens. So if we oppose murder, theft, and rape, it doesn't mean that we think that they will never happen, even in a free – even in a utopian, free, idealized future world. Um, so the fact that – We've never achieved pure anarchy is nothing more than to say we've never achieved pure, pure freedom because to the libertarian, what we're opposed to as libertarians is aggression, right? But that means we're opposed to private aggression and public or institutionalized aggression, which is the state. So we're opposed to… What we would call private crime, and we're also opposed to public crime or the state. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact that in society in the past or now or even in the future, we will have instances where people manage to violate rights doesn't prove that there are no rights. So if someone commits an act of rape 
or theft, robbery, or murder doesn't prove that the victim wasn't a victim, just as the existence of states doesn't prove that the people the state victimizes aren't victims of that and that the state is not wrong. So ideologically, I distinguish between description and prescription. Now, this is one problem that I have with activism because activists, libertarian activists, who, of which I'm sort of a part and which I love dearly, they, they focus so much on achieving their end results that they – that they they focus exclusively on that, right? And they and if they can't achieve a result, they think that they failed, which is, to my mind, the same error as thinking that if someone commits an act of murder, it proves that uh, there was no right. There, what good do rights do me if they don't stop this from happening? This is the might makes right mentality. Now that's all a prelude. So the real answer, though, is I think. My personal view is that it's almost a Randian view. Like Ayn Rand thought that before the 1800s, the the, the Enlightenment, you couldn't really have rights because you couldn't expect people to respect them. I don't know if I agree with that exactly, but I do believe that what's necessary for freedom and what can happen and maybe will happen… To allow a significant expansion of freedom is simply the growth of the human species in terms of numbers, right? We're 7 billion now, which is great. If we're 100 billion in the future, that'd be even better because you have more geniuses then. They can come up with more ideas that can percolate around society, make us all richer, uh, and the higher division of labor and the specialization of labor. Um, and Less poverty on a percentage basis, more rich people, more wealth, and more technology. I think all these things are going to come about, and they will allow everyone eventually to become their own gods, little gods, and the government will become less and less of a relevant factor. I don't think we'll abolish a state. I just think it will become a trivial, irrelevant factor like a mosquito. Right, so, like maybe even like a museum, op like 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 a uh, some some kind of exhibit in a uh, you know in a museum, uh, fine. So that's uh, that, that's my that's my view. Is so the answer is because we're not we haven't evolved enough yet. We need more wealth, more division of labor, more people, uh, more technological knowledge, and I think that will come with time. I hope it will come with time if we don't kill ourselves with some kind of a gray goo event. Uh, so in the next 100 years, 200 years, maybe we'll achieve 99% liberty and we'll be little gods. That's but, almost exactly the argument yeah. for counter-economics. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep, sounds like it. Yeah. Um, Night Shift 10,000, who uh, unfortunately couldn't join because he's dealing with something right now. Um, he says in the live chat... Uh, Thanks to agorism, society will eventually fall to anarcho-capitalism. Mm. Um, and let's see. Uh, Which is basically what you just said. I mean, my only disagreement is the time span. I don't know if it'd be 150 years. I mean, based on what's going on with, you know, cryptocurrency 
and the development of serverless connections to the internet. I, I th I'd say it's like within the next decade or two, personally. Yeah. What? Uh, what was that? What was that, Stefan? Yeah, roboting. Uh oh. Oh no. Um. Seems like uh, uh, there's a connection issue. Yeah, you're still roboting. Like we can't understand yeah, what you're saying, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh, you can't hear me. Oh, oh, now yeah. I can hear. Yeah, it just Perfect. came back. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Now we can. Well, yeah, well, I was gonna. I was gonna move to the next question from heart from heartless soy boy. Um, he put it in the private chat, and uh, he uh, wanted to ask why you believe you can't own crypto. Yeah, that's what I just said. So yeah. Uh, so it's it's basically the same as my IP view. It's because ownership is the legal right to control uh, a scarce resource. And the ultimate reason why patent and copyright law are wrong is because it, it in the end transfers control of owned resources from the owner to someone else. It's basically theft. That's what IP is. IP is what I call a negative servitude. Or a negative, uh, let's call it a servitude, um, easement. Um, so, so under patent and copyright law, without those laws, you you would have the right to use your own resources for your own purposes. Like you could use your printing press to print a book, or you could use your factory to make a mousetrap. But given patent and copyright law, it tells a third party. Now they have a right to to restrict your use of your own resource, which which means they're given a basic property right in your in your own resource, and that's legitimate if you agreed to it, but you never did agree to it. So that's the problem with it. Now, the problem with Bitcoin ownership is that it's it's a similar issue because a Bitcoin doesn't exist independently. A Bitcoin is just an entry in a ledger. The ledger is like a, a, a database of information, and that da database of information is stored on thousands of uh, of hardware devices around the world, like these nodes. And those are all privately owned, and we already know who the owners of those things are. They're the owners of those computers. So to have an ownership right in Bitcoin… Would mean you have a legal right to tell people how to use their own computers. Like, for example, if someone allegedly stole your Bitcoin, that would imply that you could tell the people that maintain the network to reverse the transaction to give you your Bitcoin back in the case of a theft. But that would mean you could use force or coercion against independent, individual, innocent people. To tell them, you have to switch your computer's hard drive from this blockchain to this other one. 
And to my mind, that is uh, illegitimate because these people are innocent third parties, and they don't – you don't have the right to tell them what to do with their own property. They can have whatever data structure they want on their hard drives. They can point to whatever cloud they want, whatever uh, whatever uh, blockchain they want to, and they don't they don't have to change it. So that's why you can't own crypto. You can't own crypto because you don't own information. Information is an unownable thing, and a crypto in the end is just information. But the information is stored in a public uh, uh, ledger, the blockchain, and that's stored on people's computers. That's, and that's no one owns the information. They just own their computers. Go ahead. I was just going to say that's certainly a new take on it for sure. But I, I would, I think that it's mistaken because I think that, uh, I, I, again, I, I don't want to start a debate, but the idea that uh, cryptocurrencies, for one, exist in sort a sort of server that's distributed among nodes. Well, the nodes are sort of how the transactions connect from one another, but there isn't sort of an overarching server. It's uh, ultimately serverless. But uh, the other issue is that it's not that bitcoins are not the are not uh, code written into blockchain into blocks in a blockchain. Uh, bitcoins are the product of interactions just like any any other form of money and yes those interactions write new code into blockchain into blocks in the blockchain but those blocks are not somehow interchange are not interchangeable with other people's wallets and their devices they just uh they exist sort of in a decentralized manner so what's so what's okay so just what's really being disputed in a case where hypothetically someone is claiming that their bitcoins were stolen by somebody else would ultimately be whether or not someone engaged in a fraudulent transaction i.e somebody gave both parties agreed to trade but uh the one party didn't fill their end of the agreement or whether or not somebody stole their device which contained their wallet that had their block their uh cryptocurrencies on it yeah i don't i don't think i disagree with any of that i just think that this is why you have to have a coherent um property-based libertarian theory of all these issues like fraud and contract and agreements absolutely so for example fraud is a particular type of interaction um it's not synonymous with contract breach and contract breach is a whole different thing but contract breach is just transfer of title to property according to rothbard and that requires an understanding of what property rights are in the first place. So you can't use contract to construct property rights. It's the other way around. Contract comes from property rights. So you can't say that and, – and, and the other issue is this word own. So people use the word own in ambiguous ways. I think most Bitcoiners use it to mean some kind of pragmatic or pr 
practical ability to get something done, like to control. But ownership is not – that's not what that means. Ownership means the legally recognized right to control. And as I said, if you have the legally recognized right to control an entry in a ledger, that would imply let, – let let's say someone steals your bicycle. And they sell it to an innocent third party, but later on you find your bicycle, you can take that bicycle back from the current possessor even if they're innocent. They can't be charged with theft, but they can lose the bicycle because you own the bicycle, and almost no one disagrees with that example because we all agree that there are property rights in material resources. But for Bitcoin, the question is do you have a material – do you have an ownership right in a Bitcoin entry? And that is a debatable question, but you can't answer it by saying um, yes because I call it theft, right? Or because you're you're worse off if you, if someone steals it from you. The question is, what does it mean? What does it mean to have ownership of uh, of, of of an intangible resource? Um, yes, in most cases that you can come up with, which we would all agree are some kind of legal wrong. I don't know if I call it theft, but let's call it theft. There is an act of trespass or a contract breach or an act of fraud, but those three things are already covered by standard law. The law already prevents fraud. The law already covers contract breach, and the law already covers trespass against property. So if you break into someone's home and you hack their computer to get their Bitcoin key, then you've committed – trespass. If you're their attorney or their CPA and they give it to you to keep it and you violate that, that's a breach of contract, right? And you can come up with fraud cases. But all those are already covered by independent causes of action that already exist. None of them apply that you own the Bitcoin or that it's an independently it's an independent crime to steal Bitcoin. So that that's my view, and the only reason I think okay. it matters is because people people use the word own to be a correlative of the idea of ownership, uh, 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 sorry, of property. So if you say you own something, that means it was property, right? So if 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 it's called theft, that means there was property in it, and if there's a property right in, if you own it, it means it could be stolen. So then people start throwing these terms around loosely, and then we get into IP and all kinds of loose. Extensions of property, and then you get into what the government does and what the state does and what the legal system does. You, then you have defamation lawsuits because, hey, someone stole my identity or they stole my reputation by lying about me. You 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 open up the entire realm of torts and 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 crimes if you don't have a clear, coherent definition of property rights. So that's that's my take on it. All right. Um, next question uh, from the live chat for, is from uh, Albedo, <laughs> something like that. Um, the question is, thoughts on the Fed pumping hundreds of billions of dollars into the repo markets to delay the market crash? <laughs> this is a good question because it's something I have like – I could pontificate, but I have no opinion on this, so 
I mean, I'm against the Fed existing, <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what remarkies he means or what market crash he's talking about. I think he's uh, in reference to, referencing to um, like the dollar is collapsing or it's becoming much uh, less. Uh, what do you uh, valuable? Is that the term used or or it's becoming more worthless or something like that? Hyperinflation. Well, we're not at hyperinflation yet, but yeah, yeah, and uh, there's there's a prediction that the dollar might collapse uh, this year, or it's or it's been a prediction that has been going on for like the past year or two, I believe. It definitely will eventually, and we're at the point now where we can just kind of look at things in the store, like things. Uh, individual units are becoming less plentiful and less quantitative, yet they're becoming more more expensive. Mm -hmm. So it's getting to the point where we can kind of, you know, see that happening, whereas previously um, it was a very... in it, it, ha it took so long for that to happen, nobody, almost nobody noticed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I uh, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think that we have gradual inflation. I think it's manifesting, but um, I've heard libertarians and Austrians and those types predict total collapse for 35 years, and it hasn't really happened yet. So I'm skeptical of doom and gloomers, to be honest, because they always seem to have a, uh, a product to sell. Buy my gold stocks or whatever. So I don't. Peter. I don't know if I believe any of these guys. <laughs> well, I mean, we can look at the fact that, like, since August, um, from like August to November, the Fed was pumping in like fifty billion a day into the repo markets, and it was just announced like two weeks ago they're going to start pumping one hundred twenty billion a day. And obviously, I don't mean like it's a literal pump. I mean, you're you're somebody who cares about semantics, so I just need to, I want to clarify that. But it, it, it seems like there's a very large disconnect between the actual, you know, stock figures and the amount of wealth that exists. So I that that's the reason why I take this the, these doomsday predictions now into consideration. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Um. And also, Peter Schiff has been predicting like, um, in twenty twenty, the market, it, um, the market is going to crash before Trump's elections. So, yeah. 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 Night Shift Ten Thousand uh, has a question in relation to this, uh, and that is, um, come on, darn thing. I hate the connection. My apologies. Uh, how long do you think that? will hold up the the uh, Fed supporting uh, the repo market. I'll let you guys answer this one. This is uh, just not my bailiwick. Hey. Um, my, my, my answer would be just it could happen sooner, could happen later. We don't know for sure, but yeah. uh, eventually it is going to collapse. I'm not going to make a prediction, but clearly there is sort of like a debt spiral situation going on where in order to stop the stock market from collapsing, 
uh, the Fed is just creating bigger and bigger loans. So do I know when it'll happen or do I claim to know? Obviously not, but mm -hmm. soon for sure. The important question is before or after November. Like that's what's going to be uh, determining like who's going to be the next president in fact. But yeah. Ugh, yeah. Um unless anybody else has any other questions, I've got a closing question. Um before we go into uh one of uh, one of my segments which is the weekly song. Uh anybody Oh, Night Shift has another question. Uh, do you think it'll be just national, or do you think it'll be a global economic collapse? Well, probably uh, considering how globalized... Like, there is spillover effect, or there was spillover effect from America to the rest of the world in 2008, so I guess so. Well, I mean, it's already happening in Europe. There are a couple different countries which... Uh, their, their banks have negative interest rates. And then on top of that, there are uh, countries which are in full economic collapse and their states haven't been able to maintain the status quo due to counter economics, Greece being a, a primary example. I was just thinking of Greece, yeah. Yeah. And where Venezuela. Where 97... Yeah, where 97% of all claims of taxes have been uh, unreported. So basically 97% of the people in Greece aren't paying aren't aren't having their money stolen because they're all trading in local economies with cryptocurrency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, um I'll go ahead and do the uh final closing question. Uh, and that is, uh, there has been quite a trend of preteens, teenagers, and young people like myself getting involved, getting interested in libertarianism, anarcho-capitalism, agorism, or anarcho-transhumanism, or individualist anarchy, or or uh, getting involved in what Esso is involved in, like the 19th century uh, tradition of individualist anarchism of the Benjamin Tucker uh, type? I'd consider him an influence of mine, but I'd, I'd say I'm more of like a, a, a an alliance of the libertarian left kind of guy, or an agorist. Oh, okay. I'm not, yeah. but... Yeah. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on uh, all those of the trend, basically? Oh... It's hard for me to tell um, where – okay, I, I've noticed in my own, say, 25-year trajectory in this movement uh, that it's been increasing ever since I've been part of it. I think probably a decade before I – maybe 15, 20 years before I started, it was 10 people in a living room, and then it was bigger dozens then hundreds then thousands and now it's it's larger um i think it's encouraging and in fact i always say that like most people i know are basically soft libertarians in the sense that you know most normal people you meet that just have jobs they don't think about the stuff they don't read it they're generally in favor of economic liberty or economic sense 
and they're generally in favor of personal liberties. So they're like soft libertarians. They're just not that consistent about it. They haven't thought about that much about it. So it's not that surprising that with the collapse of communism in the 1990s, right, uh, and with the dominance of some form of capitalism, that we have this rise of people that are generally somewhat literate on liberal topics or economic topics. Um, I think in my generation or right before the progenitors of the movement would probably have to be said to be Rand, Ayn Rand and then Milton Friedman and Murray Rothbard and maybe Mises and Hayek and Leonard Reed, but really Ayn Rand. Um, in the modern generation, I think that Ron Paul, who was never my influence because I was already there before he was, but he, he, he brought lots of people into the movement. Um, but I think that our numbers – from what I can tell, the numbers have increased, but the quality – it's weird. It's like – so the numbers have increased, but the quality has gone down in a sense, in the sense that fewer people uh, who are libertarians now are like really intellectuals. Like they haven't read a lot, but they debate online now. They meet people. So in a way, they're more radical. Like so, the the predominant movement in the seventies, let's say, was Randians, and they're hyper intellectual, very well read, but they're mostly minarchists, so they're not that radical. They're radical compared to the mainstream, but compared to what we are, they're not. They weren't like hyper Austrian, hyper anarchist. Now I would say you have more people, and they're more radical, but the quality and the intellectual knowledge has, in a way, gone down. That's just the way it goes. So as far as I can tell, it's been basically the internet and social media, right? Social groupings. What 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 uh, what's called files? Look up file. P h y l e s. There's a, a who's the, uh, the there's an Austrian type uh, gold guy uh, who pushed this idea of files. Um, anyway, um, I think it's been Ron Paul and the internet. That has incre increased our numbers, and we become more radical. And even the newbie, like even cryptocurrency, has actually increased a lot. Um, because the original crypto people were Austrians and libertarians, and then so the people who came into it from the outside, they've they've been exposed to that, and a lot of them become like us. Not all of them, but. I see the signs are good. Uh, I think uh, most young kids now are more um, – uh, yeah, they're they're Bernie bros, and they're kind of for socialism. But when they get older, hopefully they'll figure some of that stuff out. But mm -hmm. they're they're basically for civil liberties, and they're against war and against the drug war to a degree. So I see lots of positive trends. All right. Well, um Unless you have a question, Nessa. Yeah, um, I was actually going to ask this earlier, but somebody mentioned it in chat. Um, your debate with Jan Helfeld. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> oh, I, knew, I haven't seen that. that. I need oh, to see my that. God. It, was, it, was, it wasn't as funny as the Robert Wenzel one, but, I mean, you came out way better, I think. 
Uh, <laughs> what, what, what? Give me the name That's again. I'm going to put it on my... Bob, uh, uh, Jan, Jan Helfeld, who's one of these sort of uh, uh, kind of quasi-Randian type. All right. Uh, Thank you. It's, it was it was another funny one. Uh, it was one of the ones that went into like, uh, you know, I'm willing to talk to anyone, especially if they're polite and respectful. But he came into it as this sort of arrogant, Randy and minarchist, and <laughs> and and I, you know, if you're going to be in favor of the state and talk to me and, and and cop an attitude, I mean, you know, the state is is like the ultimate evil, and if you're going to run around defending taxation and I don't know the drug war or whatever the government is going to have to do to to exist, um, don't don't get judgmental. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So it, it just went downhill because he, I don't know. It was a funny interview. It was a funny discussion. Um, and he was he was taken aback the fact that I wouldn't defer to him because he's supposed to be some Puerto Rican lawyer or something. And, and some noted just noted libertarian because he's a radical compared to most people like you know uh, your your television people. But all he really does is he his shtick is to go up to people, shove a microphone in their place and ask in their face and ask them annoying questions uh, over and over and over and over again. So um, I don't know. I just thought it was it was a funny interview. Uh, what can I say? Let me guess. Did he use the warlord's argument? Probably something like probably the equivalent. I can't remember. Yes, he did. Oh, uh, I remember that, it, and he did pull that one up. Uh, that we, argument really needs to need die. A mono- we need a monopoly on security because other monopolies on security exist. <laughs> I, it's something like this. It was like suppose you're in the desert and you have no water and you come across a can of water and some other guy wants it. What do you do? Oh yeah. I, I mean, that one too. It's like, <laughs> that's not an argument. That's a hypothetical. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a question. It's not an argument. It's like, what do you, what do you do in your, in your Randian world of, of super competent States? If someone gets stranded in a desert and there's only two people and there's only one can, what do you do? I mean, what does it matter what you would do? Yeah. yeah, the the funny you know, the funny thing about consequentialist arguments is that they can be equally applied to the state. Right. Yeah. Well, that's sort of my argument is that it's like you can come up with lifeboat scenarios, but how would how would a government system solve these difficult intractable problems any better than I, I'm, the solution when when everyone's facing death and life is impossible, what's the solution? Yeah, how, does um, argue, how does that argue for the state? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that's sort of the question. Uh, what's the alternative? I think that was Thomas Sowell's uh, thing. Well, and that's sort of the the root problem with appeals to uh, consequentialism is that you can't really construct construct any sort of truth claim. You just yeah. have preferences and opinions, but you don't have any within that framework. You can't create any truths. So, really, a state society is actually a pretty good approximation of a consequentialist one. Yeah, yeah, it's what we have now, actually, right? Exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. All right. Well, um, 
unless there are no more other questions. Yeah, well, I need to go in a second because I've got to go walk some walk some poodles. Okay. Yeah. Well, well I'm just a, I'm just about to uh, wrap things up with a weekly song, which I usually do on my show. So that being said, yep, time for the ahead. weekly song. Everybody, drum roll, please. I tried. <laughs> It was a good try, though. All right, so uh, this week's weekly song for this occasion is Individualism by Backwards. Uh, uh, Backwards is an ANCAP band, a rap metal band led by Eric July. Uh, One of the coolest bands ever. Uh, Hopefully, they'll release their album this year. Hopefully, we'll see. Yeah. Stefan, (laughs) what do you think of rap metal? Limp Bizkit, your kind of music? <laughs> I don't know Limp Bizkit very much, but I, I know Eric July and I've liked his music and uh I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a rock, hard rock metal guy myself, so I can yes. I can appreciate a little bit oh, of the nice. <laughs> Yeah. More I'm like the eighties stuff though, like uh like uh Riot and uh uh uh, 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 uh Saxon and Rush and Triumph, those kind of guys. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Nice. Well oh, I can uh, well with that being said, uh I will uh, leave that song in the description box. You also can check it out on the weekly songs playlist on my channel. And, uh, uh, Stefan, thank you so much uh, for coming on and talking with us. It's been a real honor. Glad to do it. I appreciate the intelligent uh, discussion, guys. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yay. Awesome. Well, that being said, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in, and uh, please come back soon.